Last week we talked about, do you remember what we talked about last week? What disciple did we talk about? Tomas or Thomas, doubting Thomas. We looked at the book of John and we talked about how Thomas asked this obvious question of, uh, you know, or stated, I will not believe that Jesus is back until I put it in there. And we talked about how uh, doubt, even though you express these obvious thoughts or doubt, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. That doesn't have to be the thing that defines us. And the spiritual practices we put into place, uh, such as reading our Bible, uh, gathering together as a fellowship of believers, prayer, and telling stories are ways that we can know that God has come through for us and we can trust that. Jonathan ended last week actually with something that, uh, that I've been reflecting on all through the week, and it's going to lead us into this sermon today. He said something along the lines of, we are thankful that one moment in our lives does not have to continue to define us. When we come to Jesus and repent and ask for forgiveness of our sins, that doesn't have to define us anymore. Our new life is found in Christ. And so with that, we're talking about today transformation and restoration. Transformation and restoration. A lot of people can transform their lives. In fact, there are whole sections in the bookstores called self-help or whatever they're titled nowadays, improvement or, or anything. It's good business. You can transform your life and lose all the weight or, uh, you know, get into good relationships or make all the new money that you want to make. But restoration and a holy restoration, uh, they don't really talk about that. That's found in the Bible. That's <laughs> found in stories that people live out in their faith. And restoration should always lead. So being reborn and remade through Christ and in Christ's image should always lead to transformation in our lives. Right? You can have transformation without restoration, but restoration always leads to a change in your life. That's why if you have been around the church for a while and you've seen people get baptized, we always, or we should share the story of the person being baptized. This is who I was before I knew Christ. This is who I am after I've come to know Christ. And then we say, do you believe? They say yes, and then they're baptized. Because there's a story before Christ and a story after Christ. Because transformation, or restoration leads to transformation. And transformation and restoration, these things that are changing us, is an ongoing, it's an ongoing endeavor for the whole time that we're breathing and we are alive. And the person that we follow, the person that we believe died for our sins, Jesus, his whole ministry was about transformation and restoration. People didn't come to Jesus, at least they don't record the stories, I guess, that people didn't come into contact with Jesus and leave the same way that they were before. Most of the time they were transformed into a different way. And so the story of transformation starts all the way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. This book that we, uh, the story that we read at the beginning of Genesis of what our relationship was like with God before the fall. We had a perfect relationship. God created everything, and then God created man, and it was very good. And we were created to be in this community, in this relationship with God. And then, uh, in God's perfect creation of us, he gave us this thing called choice, free will. And our ancestors chose the wrong thing. <laughs> and they chose to break the relationship with God, and we were no longer in a perfect relationship. So then God said, all right, Israelites, you are our chosen people to go and show the kingdom of God into 
the ends of the earth, right? The Israelites, God's chosen people, were not chosen to just be this holy nation separate from everybody, just to be holy and separate by themselves. They were supposed to be the reflection of God's kingdom in all of the earth, kind of like the church. We're not supposed to be a church where we just sit around and we say, we're saved people, this is good, we're going to sit here and call it good and be done. We're supposed to be a reflection of God's kingdom on earth to all of the world around us. But they fell short. Right? The Israelites, the whole Old Testament is, is about their journey and about how they've fallen short of God's perfection. And in trying to fix that, in their best efforts, they came up with tons of rules. Right? So God gave the Ten Commandments, but then there's like 600 different laws that the Israelites have come up with. You know, things like don't run in the church. I don't think that's one of their laws, but that's a modern church that we have. Right? Don't run in church. Don't have different chairs in your, your sanctuary or, you know, uh, let the kids be quiet. We don't want to hear them. You know, those types of rules. But... Very strict. I mean, the book of Leviticus and all that is, is rules upon rules upon rules. So they were trying, but they fell short. And so then Jesus came as the final perfect sacrifice. That those who accept the gift of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ get counted as one of God's children. We get, in, we get promised to be uh, inheritors or receivers of eternal uh, life with God the creator that is one of the promises that we get. We are adopted into God's family. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ and of Christ. That is a good thing. Jesus came as the final sacrifice. But that's not the end of restoration. That is not the end. When we continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we start to display the fruits of the Spirit. And this is not just like a thing that we do as Nazarenes or anything. I mean, this is in the Bible. When you allow the Holy Spirit to transform your life and allows it to work, and you, sh you should start to display the fruits of the Spirit. You know, and the book of Galatians says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Which is saying all the best efforts that the people try to come up with these rules to be good and holy people, it doesn't really matter if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your life because what comes out of that are all of these gifts that are just the, what it means to be a follower and a child of God. And in our tribe, when I talk about tribe, I talk about the Nazarenes or the holiness churches. We are what's known as a holiness church. Uh, we believe that along this journey of transformation in the Holy Spirit working in our lives, there's this moment called entire sanctification. It's a fun theological word, but uh, it is basically describing... Um, the, the, an act of love where sin can no longer control our lives. Temptation is everywhere, right? Temptation is here, temptation is there. Jesus faced temptation. But the defining factor that we say happens is this moment where there, sin and temptation no longer is a drawing force in our life. We have nothing but love and eyes for Christ in all that we do. There is not an eye for the world and Christ. There's just eyes only for the kingdom of God. And the way that I have always... Uh, described it, and I probably will till the day I die, is our heart is so full of love that there is no room for sin. Like there's a moment in this journey where your heart is so full of love, there is no more room for sin in our lives. It has no hold over us. And I actually got to talk about this with somebody this past week. I was sitting in here working on a Tuesday, I think, and I was sitting over there in the chairs in the, the kids' cafe, as David has named it, and working and doing some work. And somebody was walking, somebody was like looking through the doors, you know, looking through the, the doors over here. And so I walked over and I unlocked it and I said, Hey, can I help you with anything? And 
she was asking about uh, the church next door, if they were open. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, can I help you with anything? And she was, she was looking for a church. And so I said, okay, well, we're, we're a church here. There's two churches in this location. Explaining to her how we came to be. And uh, she said she's looking for a Baptist church specifically, which, okay, that's fine. I don't know where any Baptist churches are around here. I just know that you could probably throw a rock and hit one somewhere, I'm sure. But I just said, hey, here's what I know. There's a Methodist church across the street. There's a, a Church of God, I think, across that side. And there's a Presbyterian church. And then there's us as Nazarenes. And she's like, I have never heard of a Nazarene. What is that? And I said, Jesus. Not really, but I said, uh, okay, you obviously know a little bit about theology. I mean, this is... You know, it's so hard to get into these deep conversations with people that you've just met because you don't know where they're at in their journey, right? And they just, they want to know about us. So I said, we, you know, we come from the Methodists, and um, she asked, do you guys believe in, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? I said, yep, we, we believe that. It's really good. And she was, you know, like, what makes you different from everybody else? And I said, well, there's a thing called entire sanctification, which is, a, again, a weird word to explain to somebody for the first time who's ever hearing it. And trying to explain what this relationship of love is, is very difficult sometimes because when you start to throw around words like perfection and restoration and um, this is what it means to be in perfect love and perfect relationship with Christ, people get weirded out by it because, uh, and this is, she said what a lot of people have said. They said there's only been one person who's ever walked this earth that has been sinless and blameless and that's Jesus Christ. And I said, you're absolutely right. There is no argument from me there. I said the difference and what we believe is that our, our walk and our transformation has to be one that actually is transformative in our life. These aren't just words that we say that we believe Jesus and, you know, we're free from sin so we can do whatever we want type of thing or, uh, you know, the want saved, always saved uh, idea that once you've accepted Jesus, you're good for the rest of your life no matter what, right? This is a relationship that we have to go back and forth with, that when I stay in relationship with God in this transformation, that the Holy Spirit continues to transform my life. And that if I come out of that relationship, just like Adam and Eve decided not to be in the relationship with God that, uh, that was required of them, then we just fall away from God, right? So we're not living into our transformed selves. It was really good. Uh, we talked a little bit more about, like, she grew up Greek Orthodox, and then she went on her way, invited her to church, and she said, maybe I'll see you. And um, that was that. So perfection and transformation, I think, is sometimes a very hard concept to understand because I don't think a lot of people continue to develop this relationship with Christ. We love to hear the transformation stories of people coming up and getting baptized, right, or the crazy stories. And I got... um, in trouble is not the right word one time. I grew up in the church, so I've always known Jesus. And we were doing this thing called Alpha. I don't know if you ever heard it. Uh, it's basically telling you about who Jesus is. You ask all these questions, and at the end, you have to share these stories about your life. You have to give a three-minute testimony. And uh, this guy, a bunch of people got up and talked about these amazing moments of transformation. One guy talked about uh, he was a, an addict, and then he accepted Jesus, and the next day he was not an addict. You know, like these amazing stories of transformation. And I got up and I said something along, along the lines of, like, uh, my story is not as good as, like, some other people's here. You know, my story is not as exciting. And uh, somebody said, I don't know why you talk about your relationship like that. You know, something along these lines. I don't know why you talk about your relationship with Christ like that because you have a story and it's beautiful. Transformation doesn't have to be instant 
to know what God's full love is. And I thought that was really powerful because we all have a story. We all have a life that was before God and after God. And in fact, the first piece of scripture we're going to be reading about or reading here in the book of Psalms is uh, David writes it. He writes a lot about transformation, uh, and he does it through story and through song all the time. So when David writes Psalms, I can relate to it because he always, uh, sorry, not always, I say always, but Oftentimes, when he's writing about God's goodness, he talks about where the people came from before that. Where the Israelites came from, what their life was like before they followed God out of the desert, to what it's like now. And a lot of the stories we read in the Old Testament, when they're prophesying, they're talking about God's greatness, is they always remember and point back to what it was like before God brought them out of the situation they're in. There's the promised land and what it was like before the promised land. So there's always a journey that they get to highlight and point to. So Psalm 30 is the first one that we're reading from. We're reading from three scriptures today, Psalms, John, and Acts. And these are all come from the lectionary. So the lectionary, again, is a, a resource that we use to cycle through the Bible in three years. So every three years you get through the whole Bible. You can find this resource online or I can help you if you want to do a daily reading to find that location. So Psalm 30, I'm going to read the very beginning and the very ending of this psalm. So we start with um, verse 1 through 5. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me up out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead and spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And then we'll go to verse 11. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Those last two verses... I just, there's such great transformation. You turned my wailing into dancing. That is a totally opposite, they're totally opposite emotions. And you removed my sackcloth or, you know, my mourning attire, like sad attire, and you clothed me with joy. David lived through some stuff. <laughs> David experienced some things as a follower of God. And he always points back that I was sad or my enemies were after me, but you and your greatness and your transformation changed my attitude and gave me a new life and new purpose. You could turn with me to Acts if you want to now. We're going to be in the ninth chapter of Acts. And a lot of times when we talk about transformation and great stories of transformation, you can't really do that without talking about this guy named Saul or Paul. Paul is, uh, he writes... Most of the New Testament, I think, he, is, uh, he was a religious leader in his time. Uh, he came, he didn't know Jesus or didn't really appreciate Jesus or accept Jesus when he walked this earth. And the story here leading up to what we're going to read is he was commissioned, actually, by the high priests uh, to go and seek out Christians and to persecute them and to basically get rid of them so they're not spreading the gospel. See, the religious leaders thought that this was just going to fizzle out. They thought that this Jesus movement was just going to be a flash in the pan because other people would claim to be the Messiah. So they said, we're, gonna, we're not going to worry about it, and it's just going to go away. 
Obviously, it did not go away. So they had to do something about it. So they hire, they tell Paul, Saul at this time, you need to go out and get rid of these people. He said, okay, I'm going to do it, and gladly. And uh, so he's out walking around. He's heading to the city of Damascus, and he sees, him alone sees this bright light. And the word, you know, God, Jesus says, why are you persecuting my people? And Saul's like, who are you? Why are you talking to me? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now go to the city. And Paul is blinded. Can't see anything. And the people around him are confused because they didn't see any of this happen. They didn't see the conversation. They just saw Paul uh, struck with fear. And the next thing, he was blind. So they took him to the city. And basically, he's told to wait there until the next thing happened. So in verse 7, or sorry, Starting at verse 10 is where we're going to pick up this scripture. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Obviously, this is a transformative event for Saul, Paul. I mean, he, it was so transformative, he got blinded. I mean, he was literally blinded by the Lord and then was prayed over and commissioned and then baptized. I mean, this is amazing. This is a guy that was literally, his whole scholarship leading up to this moment, he was very wise in, in all the cultures around him and specifically in the Jewish religion. I mean, he was a leader and a scholar, so much so that he could refute everything that, he was, being, that was being taught about Jesus. So for him, in just a matter of days, just a few days, to have his whole life turned upside down is amazing. And then for him to go on, kind of like Thomas, to go on beyond this moment to spread the gospel everywhere. And so obviously that's a transformative. But there are other people in this story. We don't know what happened to the people around Paul. We just know that they didn't see what was happening. They just took him to the city, and that's the last we hear of him. But again, I can't imagine... This is me speculating that I am traveling with a guy whose sole job is to hunt down Christians, and then he's struck blind in the middle of the road, and next thing you know, he's baptized three days later to join the Christian faith. I mean, that's got to be pretty profound. That's a pretty profound story and a pretty profound testimony. And then there's Ananias, right? Ananias is this guy. He's just in Damascus. He loves Jesus, and Jesus speaks directly to him, you know, and says, hey, you need to go and pray for this guy. And Ananias is like, listen, we know who this man is. Like, you know who he is, God, right? You know who this man is. He's 
capturing your people. And God says, I don't care. I am telling you to go and to pray over him because I have a purpose for his life. So Ananias had to trust God. This is extreme faith and trust shown through Ananias. And then he lays his hands on and prays over him. That's the transformation. But then there's the next step. Ananias has to take this man, this persecutor, to the other disciples and say, let me tell you about this guy. His life is different. And you have to believe that uh, they were not very trusting either. I mean, this is like inviting, if you can imagine your worst enemy, the person who's given you the most grief in your life, who has tried to tear you down, who's tried to hurt you. If you've ever had somebody like that, it is not a fun experience. But this is like somebody... Their friend saying, hey, this person has accepted Jesus. Can they travel with you and eat with you for three days? And will you feed them? And will you clothe them? And will you teach them the ways? Like that is a big ask for an enemy that is literally trying to throw you in jail. I want you to think about, could, do you think that you could do that? Do you think that if your best friend came to you or just somebody, who was a, somebody in our church came to us and said, here's this person. They've been trying to shut you down for many years. Uh, hey, they experienced Jesus and they're totally different now. Like, you would be pretty hesitant, I'd imagine. I know I probably would be pretty hesitant. But transformation, especially in this time when you trust fully in Christ, is powerful. Paul was transformed and restored to do God's bidding for the gospel to go to the end of the earth. And the last book we're going to look at is the book of John. So this is picking up where Jonathan got done reading and uh, that was actually picking up where we got done talking last week about Doubting Thomas. And this, this is titled, Jesus Reinstates Peter. So uh, when Jesus was being persecuted and being hung on the cross, he told Peter beforehand, he says, hey, by the time the, the rooster sounds the third time, you will have denied me. By the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And for me, one of the most chilling moments in all of Scripture is when the rooster crows and Jesus looks right up at Peter and that's right after the third time he's denied him. And Peter knows exactly what he did. He's denied Christ three times, and he is he's heartbroken. And so Jesus comes back, right? And uh, there's this awkwardness <laughs> that you kind of have to deal with. And so picking up in the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. For the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus, thankfully, is in the restoration business. 
This is a man who Peter has had his ups and downs, right? He's the one that walked out on the water and sank because he had too little faith. He's the person that grabbed a sword and cut off the guy's ear when they tried to arrest Jesus. He's the person that said, you are the Messiah. And then in the next you know, minute, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter is up and down, and he just, he was brash, and he said what he wanted to say, and he just, he trusted, and he didn't always get it right. So much so that, you know, when you said, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, he said, there is not a chance I will ever deny you, Jesus. Not a chance. And with that promise, you know, he was proven to be incorrect. And even though it probably did not feel good, and, you know, Peter is exasperated, he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. He had to say it. He had to confess it and say it. And Jesus said, you know, feed my sheep. Go and do what you were called to do. Jesus is in the restoration business. And like Peter, when we confess our love for Jesus, uh, we are made new and our past is forgiven. Praise God. There is nothing in our past that can keep us from the love of God when we confess to Jesus that we love him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. Transformation and restoration, like I said at the beginning, is ongoing. This process never, ever stops. A holy restoration is a process that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. Right? We cannot make ourselves be more godlike. We could say that we're more godlike. We can act like we're more godlike. But unless our heart is transformed over and over again, the holy restoration cannot be done by anybody except the Holy Spirit. But it is up to us to offer ourselves up as the sacrifice. Right? It is up to us to surrender our lives and up to us to say, I am in need of God's love in my life so I can be transformed more like Christ. It's ongoing until the day you die. right? Until the day that you die or Jesus comes back, there is always more depth of God's love to understand and to experience and to feel because God is infinite. So the question is, where are you finding yourself? I mean, have, have you been transformed? That is the question. Have you allowed yourself to be freed from past sins? Have you allowed yourself the forgiveness and the grace that God offers into you, onto you and for you? It's hard. It's hard to be forgiven and not to kick yourself over and over again for past mistakes that you have made. And I'll say this for us and for anybody who doesn't know Jesus. You do not have to be perfect to come to Jesus. That's the one thing I think we get wrong so much as, as the church and as people as we're trying to get people to come to churches. We do not have to be perfect to come before the cross. The 12 disciples that said, I will follow you, Jesus, and all the other people were not perfect people. They weren't perfect people all the way up until Jesus was sacrificed and killed. And they weren't perfect even when Jesus came back because they still had to be restored. You do not have to be perfect to come before Christ. And if you know Jesus, how do you continue to be transformed? We get up here week after week, myself or Jonathan or whoever else is preaching, and we talk about good news and the transformation, transformation that Christ offers us. And I know it's hard sometimes that from week to week do we experience a change in our lives of Christ, you know, transforming our hearts. So I'm going to ask you, if you look back in the past year, look back one year ago today, so we're May 1st, 2021, right? 
Look where you were. Think about that time. And think about to where you are at right now in your life. Are you any different? Are you more holy? Are you closer to God than you were one year ago? And I get it. It's stressful to allow the Holy Spirit to transform your life. And it's scary and it's terrifying sometimes. But I can tell you without a doubt that myself and my family, we are so much better than we were one year ago. Trusting God has has made us not to be too reliant upon ourselves. (laughs) It has not made us uh, or it allowed us the freedom to follow wherever God has called us. Right? Trusting God has led us to this place right here in Dallas. Right? God, trusting God has closed doors for other churches. It has given us eyes to be super open about wherever we went. Right? And to follow God. It has, it has made our family closer together. Uh, I think it's made our family closer. Even the people that are uh, 999 miles away right now, I think we're closer to them than we were now. We appreciate people more. We appreciate our family and our connections more and our friends we, I'm going to say I because I can't speak for Carlene. But I do think that we are better as a couple and we're better as a family. We are so different than we were one year ago. And that is because we have trusted God more and more. So the question I have for you, and I want you to tell me after service or during this week, is how is your life different than it was one year ago? And if it's not, that is something we have to confess and repent for and lay ourselves at the cross and say, I need more transformation and more restoration from you Christ and the way we do that the way we do that is in a bunch of different ways we're going to do some prayers here in a second but in uh, also the table we take communion every week which I want you to know is kind of a weird thing in, in Nazarene churches I have learned right the, the requirement if you want to get technical is once a quarter we have to have communion once a quarter that's what the, the manual states but uh, I have come to appreciate and I grew up in a church that did communion every week and we do it here every week. And I love that because it is a reminder every week, if nothing else, if you hear nothing else from this message or the songs we sing or the prayers we pray, that knowing that coming to this table is an act of repentance and sacrifice and recognition that there is transformation to be done in our lives. So as we pray, as we get ready to come to the table and focus on this, I want us to take some time to really reflect. Where have you been a year from now? And where do you hope God takes you in the next year? So we're going to go through some prayers to examine uh, up here. So think back over the last week. I know I just said a year, but I want you to just do this for a week. And where did you choose selfishness over godliness? And I'll give you a moment to just think about that and then offer that up to God and ask for forgiveness. Where did you choose selfishness over godliness this past week? Now, over this thing over the past week, what patterns in your life kept you from living uniquely in the way of Jesus?
And over this next week, upcoming, as we look to be transformed, how might you make space to be transformed by the Holy Spirit? And when you think about this, I want you to ask God for the strength or endurance or whatever you need to make that happen. And if you need somebody to help hold you accountable, I want you to think about who that might be as well. How can you make space for the transformation of the Holy Spirit? I would invite you to say the prayer that uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray and that we can all pray together as followers of Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.